Well, uh, last week we began the book of Nehemiah, and uh, we saw in the first chapter Nehemiah come face to face with the burden of God. Uh, God had looked out upon the people of Israel and their city, the holy city, a city that was meant to radiate with God's glory and God's goodness, a city that was meant to reverberate with the glory of God and broadcast God's grace to the nations around them. That city, for over 150 years now, had lied in ruins. And God knew about it, but he shared that information with Nehemiah, who was a thousand miles away, serving as the cupbearer to the most powerful king in the world at that time, a man named Artaxerxes in Persia. And when Nehemiah heard what God had seen, Nehemiah's heart was moved. It says in verse 4 of chapter 1 that he prayed and he fasted and he mourned for many days. He was broken up over the gap between what should be and what was. And his heart drove him to cry out to God. And he began to pray. We saw him last week confessing his sin and confessing the sin of the people of Israel and asking the God of the covenant to revive the people of Israel once again. Nehemiah had begun to see things the way that God saw things. And the way that I presented it to you last week, I was trying to declare to you that this is often the first step in God renewing his people. In the book of Nehemiah, God is the main character. God is the one who is working hard to renew the people of Israel. God is the one who is trying to get not just the city operating at full strength, but the city operating that way so that the people of God can be worshipers of God, devoted to God, coming to the temple of God, offering sacrifices to God. But there's a danger that comes after God shares his burden with us. There is a danger that comes when God reveals to us the gap between what is and what could be. The danger is that we might conclude that nothing can be done, that that's just the way that it is, that the gap in the church or the gap in my life, those things are permanent fixtures. There is nothing that can be done. Nehemiah and the people in Jerusalem could have come to that conclusion. Like I said, for 150 years, the city had been in disrepair. By that point, everyone who had seen the city in its former glory was dead. Everyone who'd seen millions of people visiting Jerusalem in the feasts to celebrate the God of Israel was dead. Everyone who'd seen the kings of Israel sitting on glorious thrones pointing to the true king of kings and lord of lords was dead. Everyone at that time saw Jerusalem as just another vassal city that reported to the kings of earth. And they would have had little hope that anything could change. In fact, the people in Jerusalem during Nehemiah's day weren't even dreaming about rebuilding the walls or repairing the gates. The reigning king in Persia was against them. King Artaxerxes, Nehemiah's own boss, had only years earlier forbade them from rebuilding the city. 
They had no resources at their disposal. They were just a poor nation without opportunities to raise capital. And they had no plans for what they would do even if they were given permission to rebuild. The task was so daunting. It seemed fixed in nature. And so what you have is a group of people, Nehemiah included, who would be tempted to say, we have no hope. We have no hope that this could change. We have no hope that anything that has been in the past could be any different in the future. They say past performance is the best indicator of future performance. And they could have looked at the last 15 decades and even beyond that and said, there's no way. What we've seen in the past dictates that in the future, we're going to be continually living in this despair. And so God worked hard in Nehemiah chapter 2 to awaken hope in his people. This is what God does. I hope that you saw that God was moving all throughout this chapter. Nehemiah confessed it. After the king asked him what he wanted, what did Nehemiah say? In verse 4, he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. When the king gave him everything that he wanted, Nehemiah concluded, the good hand of my God was upon me. Once Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, he got up in the night to inspect the city because he said he had told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. And when he finally told the Jewish leadership why he was there, he said, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And when a coalition of hostile forces came against them, Nehemiah responded, the God of heaven will make me prosper. Nehemiah was conscious that God was doing things throughout this chapter, working to revive and awaken the hope inside of his people. And I believe that God wants to awaken this hope in many of us today. He wants us to know that we have the permission, we have the resources, we have the plans of heaven at our disposal to help us experience renewal with God. And when we need renewal, God wants us to believe that it can happen. He wants us to have this hope. So what did God do to awaken hope in Israel in this episode, and how might he awaken hope in us today? Well, the first thing I want you to see is that God awakens hope while we pray. God awakens hope while we pray. And what I don't mean is that somehow hope inside your heart, an expectation or a confidence that God could move, is somehow a reward that God will give you if you pray for enough minutes. You know, like God is in heaven going, you know what I really love most of all? Prayers. And if you pray, then I will reward you with a feeling of hope. That's not what I'm talking about today. There's something that happens as we pray, though, and it's that hope arises. Now, I get this because of what happened to Nehemiah. You know, last week when we were in chapter one, we saw Nehemiah's initial burst of prayer. But that episode, it tells us, began four months before this episode began. Both chapters have a time marker. 
What this means is that Nehemiah had not just heard the burden that God revealed, was moved by the burden, prayed for a minute, and then forgot what God had showed him. No, for four probably long months, Nehemiah was on his face before God. He was continually praying and bringing this burden to the Lord. And those four months might have felt like an eternity to Nehemiah. You know, when Nehemiah finally got to actually rebuild the walls and repair the gates, you know how long it took? 52 days. Under two months is how long it took Nehemiah to rebuild the city. So he prayed for four months for a thing that was going to take him less than two months to accomplish. He was crying out to God, asking God to do this work. And I don't know if there were ever moments that that Nehemiah felt that God was inactive, but God was certainly active. God was moving in Nehemiah's heart. God was preparing the king to respond in the way that he did, and he was preparing the right moment for the people in Judah to hear the news of Nehemiah's arrival. God was working in those long-term, longer prayers that Nehemiah prayed. And you guys, sometimes God will invite us into long-term prayers for a, pe- for a people or for a project or for a movement, things that we'd like to see God do in our lives. My first year working here at this church, my first year on staff was 1999 a long time ago. And there are things that I began praying for God to do in this community that I'm still asking God to do in this community. There are people in your life that you know that you need to pray for sometimes for decades, asking God to work and move in their lives. But Nehemiah not only prayed long prayers, he prayed a very short prayer in this passage as well. It says in verse 2 that Nehemiah was serving one day in the courts of the king, and he had sadness of heart. And he says that he had never been sad in the king's presence before. Many people think that it was actually illegal for him to be sad in the king's presence. It's like if you're on the king's staff, you have to be cheerful and upbeat at all times. And King Artaxerxes on this day, he noticed for the first time Nehemiah's sadness, and he asked Nehemiah about it. Nehemiah is very honest. It's like this book is a journal almost. He says, I was very afraid. You know, I'd never been sad in his presence. He asked me that question, but Nehemiah had a decision in that moment, and what, what Nehemiah did is he took his shot. He didn't say, oh, king, it's nothing. Oh, king, I'm sorry that I'm sad. He says, why wouldn't I be sad? When the city of my father's graves lies in ruins, its gates burnt with fire, its walls broken down, why wouldn't I be sad when that's the condition of my hometown? And the king responded in verse four by saying, what are you requesting? What do you want? And Nehemiah said, so I prayed to the God of heaven. That's a brief prayer that Nehemiah silently uttered to God. He wasn't saying to Artaxerxes, hey, yo, I need a minute to pray about this. Can I have a few days? Can I even just have a few hours? Can I get some counsel as we put our list together? No, it's a momentary thing. Artaxerxes doesn't even know about it. Nehemiah is just talking to God as he's talking 
to this king. You see, Nehemiah's long-term prayers were foundational, but sometimes a short prayer is more helpful in the moment. You know, imagine you've been praying for someone for decades or for many years. They're caught up in a life or in a mindset that is blocking God's love and grace from having access to their hearts. And then one day they call you. They're distraught or something has gotten into their minds. A tragedy has struck them and they're ready to begin talking about the things of God. They're ready to begin talking to you about Jesus. Now you've been praying for them so you know exactly what you want to have happen ultimately in their lives, but you're likely in that moment going to pray again, quietly, silently, quickly to God. God, please give me wisdom right now. Show me what to say to this person. Give me power and forcefulness. Give me the scriptures that I need. Father, help me in this moment. And while in prayer, what happens is our hope is awakened. How? How does prayer translate into hope that God can do things. Well, it was through prayer that Nehemiah realized that he wasn't really getting permission from the king that day, but through the king, from the true king. Nehemiah was standing that day before the most powerful man on earth, but because he'd been praying for four months to the God of heaven, he realized that this man was just a man. And that behind that man, or above that man, there was God who cared for Nehemiah and was leading his life. And Nehemiah had come to realize this, I think, through prayer. In fact, there's an indication of this that we skipped over last week in chapter 1. At the end of his prayer, notice in verse 11 of chapter 1, Nehemiah said, Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. No one called King Artaxerxes just a man. But that's how Nehemiah came to think of him because he was interacting with the God of heaven. You see, it's very easy to live in a place of discouragement or hopelessness, to think that there's no way that renewal can happen or that anything can change, that everything that was before is what will come after. It's easy to believe that we are stuck. But as we pray and interacted with God, we're reminded of the divine reality, a greater reality. We're reminded of God's ability. And our hope should begin to awaken because we can't have true fellowship with God without being transformed to become a bit more like God is. And God knows what he can do. You know, when you spend a long weekend with a close friend, and by the end of the weekend, you're kind of sounding just like them. You guys are rubbing off on each other. You're laughing at the same stuff. You're saying the same things, finishing each other's sentences. That's not what it's like with us and God. When we spend time with him, it's not like a little bit of us is rubbing off on him. He's the same yesterday, to today, and forever. He does not change. He is unchangeable and immovable. But when we interact with him, we are changed. We begin to see a little bit of his power and reality and authority. Elijah the prophet was a man who had an experience like this in his ministry. He came around a long time before Nehemiah's day. 
And he had to spend a long time alone with God. Time in prayer, time in the word. And one thing that Nehemiah, or excuse me, that Elijah noticed in scripture was that, that God had made an agreement with the people of Israel that if they persisted in rebellion against him, he would declare a drought as a way to wake them up from their spiritual slumber. And Elijah started realizing, as he realizes about God through interacting with God, that he was living in a time of spiritual rebellion amongst God's people. So James recaps Elijah's story and what Elijah did next. He said, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And I suggest to you, it's only because of his interaction with God that Elijah would pray, ever dreamed to pray that way. This was not just some random desire that he had. You know what I really want? I want a drought for three and a half years. No, what he had come to conclude through interacting with God in prayer and more importantly in his word was that this is the kind of thing God said he would do. And so he began crying out to God, God, I'm asking you to do the very thing that you have revealed in your word that you would do. And Nehemiah, he wanted provisions and permission to go rebuild God's city so that it could be the place that God stated it was meant to be. And so he'd become confident and hopeful as he prayed that God could do these things. And I think as we interact with God over time and in important moments, we might be further reminded of what God can do and what God wants to do. And our hope as we pray is awakened. So spend time with the Lord because he will remind you of his power and ability and what he can do. But another way that God awakens hope in this passage is by making a way. God awakens hope by making a way. Uh, Nehemiah responded to the king's question after he prayed his short prayer. He said in verse 5 to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Now here what you have is the boldness that Nehemiah had in front of God privately in prayer coming out. Now it turns into boldness in front of his boss, in front of the king. And Nehemiah's attitude is very reminiscent of a lot of other people in scripture. People like Daniel or Joseph or Esther or the apostles who were bold before kings and emperors. Nehemiah wanted the king's permission to rebuild Jerusalem and he wanted to be the one to rebuild it. He's not just praying for Jerusalem, but he's volunteering himself for Jerusalem. And the king, it says in verse 6, responded favorably. He said, how long will you be gone and when will you return? And when Nehemiah heard those words, what he realized is that the king is favorable towards me. So what he asked Artaxerxes for was for two letters. The first letter was for governors that were on the journey in the province beyond the Euphrates River so that Nehemiah could have permission to pass and permission to build. And the second letter was for a man named Asaph, he says in verse 8. Asaph was in charge of the king's lumberyard. 
and he would be the one that Nehemiah needed to get supplies from. And so he says, give me a letter to Asaph saying that I get to have all the timber that I need for the project. And the king granted Nehemiah, it says in verse 8, what he asked for the good hand of his God was upon him. This was super abundant favor and provision. This was a miracle. Nehemiah got everything that he asked for, and he asked for a lot. He didn't set the bar low. He set the bar high. It was a huge request. They say, go big or go home, and that's what Nehemiah was doing. He wanted permission. He wanted provision. He wanted protection, and he got all three. The same king, this is the same king that had shut down the rebuilding project a few years earlier, was now commissioning Nehemiah to go do the rebuilding. God had made a way where there was no way. Now the people back in Jerusalem, they didn't know about any of this happening. They were, were likely convinced that renewal would never come, it would never happen. But a thousand miles away, God is doing this work, providing everything that they needed for the rebuilding effort. You see, you guys, this is God. He makes a way where there is no way. You know, years earlier, before Nehemiah's day, there was a prophet who came after Elijah named Elisha. There was a famine in a city of God in Elisha's day. A famine that was terrible and desperate. I mean, people were dying in the streets. And the famine had been caused because the Syrian army was besieging the city. No one could go out or come in. And so there were no supplies getting to the people. And one day, Elisha the prophet prophesied in the city. He said, within 24 hours, grain and barley are going to be abundant on the streets of Samaria. Now, there was a military official who heard Elisha's prophecy. He was the one that was in charge of guarding the gate, and he said in response, he said, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? You see, there's a real lack of faith in this man. He said, no, God, God can do a lot, but he can't do that. He might be the God of heaven, but he can't do that. Even if he made windows in heaven, he could not do that. And Elisha responded and said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now, right about that time, there were a few beggars on the outskirts of the town at the gates of the city. And what they realized as they were begging was that nobody had anything. <laughs> they realized that they were dying and that if they went into the city to look for bread, they were destined to die. And they looked out into the plain, they saw the Syrian encampment, and they thought to themselves, well, what do we have to lose? If we go out to them and ask them for food, what's the worst that could happen to us? They'll kill us. We're going to die if we don't do something. So it would be the same result. So they said, let's just go and see if they might take us as prisoners of war and feed us as their prisoners. They went out to the encampment, and to their shock, the whole Syrian camp was empty. Not only was it empty, but the Syrians had left everything, all their food, all their supplies, all their beverages, they'd left them all behind. Apparently what God had done in the night was bring the sound of a massive invading army into the Syrian camp. They thought they were under attack, and so they fled for their lives. These 
beggars, these lepers, were there eating all the food that the Syrians had left behind. And finally, they looked at each other and they said, what we are doing is not good. We have to go tell everyone back in the city of this miracle that has just occurred. They went back in. At first, nobody believed them. They sent out some spies to see if it was true. And the spies came back and confirmed their report. And the stampede out of the city was so massive that the captain who was guarding the gate was trampled to death. He had seen it with his eyes, but he had not tasted it with his mouth. You see, God can do things above and beyond what we think is possible. He is able. We call him the way maker. We know that he parted the Red Sea. We know that he opened prison gates. We know that he fulfilled dreams. We know that he brought down hostile powers. In the Bible, we see him time and time again make a way where there was no way. And of course, We don't need to go to the Red Sea or the walls of Jericho to see this most potently. We just go to the cross of Jesus Christ because there, there was no way for us to experience God. There was no way for us in our sin and brokenness to have fellowship with God. But but where there was no way, God made a way. Jesus became one of us. He fulfilled the law that we could not fulfill on our behalf. He died and took our punishment and judgment on our behalf and rose from the grave. And now, with God, because of Jesus, there is always, for God's people, a way forward for renewal. We have to believe this. Even when we feel dry, or empty, or like the same old sins have been taking us out over and over again, or the people in our lives keep hurting us time and time again, or the addiction seems so strong, we have to believe that God is the one who makes a way where there seems to be no way. We have every resource of heaven at our disposal. Paul said it this way in Ephesians 1, verse 3. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You know, walking with Jesus is not like other religions. Walking with Jesus is not like some video game where as you go from level to level, you acquire more weapons and more skills, more things that you gotta do stuff to get them. No, when you become a Christian, this text tells us, is that when you're placed in Christ, when you come to believe in him, you get every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's all at your disposal on day one. You can't earn it. It's bestowed upon you by the living God because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's our position if we're in him. This means that if we're in him, We have access to all the permission, provision, and protection we need for spiritual renewal to occur in our lives. And I think that this hope that I'm trying to paint for you today, it's important in our time. Now, some of you feel like the world has changed too much and that spiritual vitality and life cannot come in conditions like these. And if you feel that way, I'd say to you, I think you've forgotten 
who God is. You've forgotten that this episode that we're studying right now happened during a time of exile. You've forgotten that the exodus occurred from a slavery in Egypt. You've forgotten that the church exploded during Roman oppression. God worked through kings like Nebuchadnezzar and Herod and Artaxerxes and Cyrus and Pharaoh, Nero, Domitian, and others to accomplish his work in his people. We have everything we need. We have the word, we have one another, we have prayer, we have God, and with him, we have all we need to experience radical renewal, no matter the conditions that we face in this world. But I want to look at one last way that God awakens hope in us, and it's by revealing his plans. It's by revealing his plans. What I mean by that is that as Nehemiah prayed, a plan began to materialize. During the months that he prayed, he began to realize what was needed for this project to occur. Notice he's ready with an answer when Artaxerxes says, what do you need, what do you want? He like knows the name of the guy who's in charge of the lumber yard thousands of miles away. <laughs> you don't just know that information. It takes planning, plotting, thinking. He knew how much time he needed to do the work. He knew the military presence that would be helpful to him on the road, how much all of this would cost. God was stirring things in Nehemiah. Once he arrived in Jerusalem, the plan developed even further. And it was those plans that would really awaken hope amongst God's people. So what can we learn from the plan that Nehemiah gathered together and unfolded to the people in Judah near the end of the chapter? Well, first, we learned that the plan required careful inspection. You know, he arrived in Jerusalem, and after three days, he developed the plan further by conducting a nighttime investigation of the damage. You know, he'd heard about it, but now he needed to see it with his own eyes. He didn't want to draw attention to himself without having a chance to see the scope of the project with his own vision. So only he and a few others circled the city that night. So it takes careful inspection. Sometimes you have to step back and say, why are things the way they are? What has gotten me into this situation and mess? The second thing about the plan is that the plan is not about you. And the plan is not about me. Nehemiah was very conscious of that. He's very humble. He, he didn't make a big deal about the approximately five-month journey that he had to go through to get from the palace in Susa to the city of Jerusalem. Notice how he tells the story of his five-month journey. He says, I talked to the king. Then, verse 11, so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. He's recounting five months of rigorous travel with that little line. So I went to Jerusalem. That tells me that Nehemiah didn't think it was all about him. He thought the plan and what was about God, what God is doing. This is God's story. Third, the plan is initiated by God. Nehemiah said as much here in verse 12 when he said that his desire to rebuild was what God had put into his heart to do for Jerusalem. He gave all credit and all glory to God. It's God who's wanting to do this. This is not my plan. This is God's plan. This is not my initiation. It's God's initiation. And the plan is often a private 
affair. For Nehemiah, the plan came together in private before he went public with it. And God will do this to you. He will stir you in private and in quiet and in unpublicized ways before he'll launch you into a period of renewal, a plan of renewal. And I can imagine even now, God is trying to do this. Like Nehemiah, the Spirit is trying to minister to your heart to develop a plan for renewal in this next year of your life. But he has to get to your heart in the quiet, alone, before the work becomes known. And finally, the plan is secondary to prayer. Nehemiah came up with a proposal, but it all happened after he had spent time in prayer. It was an outflow of prayer. Nehemiah was a man of prayer, so a plan formed. J.I. Packer said it this way. He said, to trust in any form of organization or in any spiritual gift or configuration of gifts or in any gifted person's ministry to bring new life to a church is indeed spirit-quenching. When hope rests on these factors rather than on God, prayer fades, pride blossoms, and God's blessing is withheld. In other words, when we think it's about us, we just plan and plan and plan and we don't pray. Prayerlessness is the result of putting credit where it is not due, yourself. So we must look to God for the plans for renewal and continually trust the God of the plan rather than make a God of the plan. But I say all this about the plan or planning because I think some of you, you might need to, during this season of your life, prayerfully plan for spiritual renewal. I think a lot of Christians are kind of like lightning bolt Christians. And that's what they're hoping for. Like, I just want to be kind of cruising along and have a lightning bolt strike me. Like, God, just do a thing that shakes me up and wakes me up when he's like, I got this whole book for you. I've got these spiritual disciplines for you. I've got great counselors in the church for you. I've got service for you to do that would help you come to the end of yourself. I've got generosity for you to enter into that would teach you to get mastery over your finances. I've got all these things that could happen in your life at your disposal right now if you would just make a plan to enter into those things. But so many of us say, but I just want God to just strike me with an exciting moment for him. But he's there, he's ready. And for some of you, you might need to do that this year in your life. You might need to plan to build the spiritual disciplines into your life. Some people say things like, oh, I just, I wish I knew the word better. But don't let it stay as a wish. You can know the word better. You could plan to take time to study the word of God. There are so many resources at our disposal in this modern age. Things like Bible study or prayer or service take a plan. For some of you, this will mean pursuing a small gathering of like-minded believers for weekly encouragement and accountability like we have in our life groups and discipleship groups. That takes a plan. For some of you, this will mean learning how to become a reader or a thinker so you can bring solid Christian practices into your life today. For some of you, it will mean consuming good counsel on things like parenting so that you can raise your children in a biblical way. But the things of life at some point will require planning. You can't just float through things like relationships, a walk with God, a career, 
parenting, marriage, friendship, or church service without a plan for growth. And God wants to help you with that plan. Now, after all of this was presented, Nehemiah presented the plan, there were two groups of people who responded in two different ways. And we'll wrap up by thinking for a second about how they responded. First of all, it says in verse 16 to 18 that Nehemiah gathered together with the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. It's kind of a good idea. You guys are going to be working on this for the next 52 days. I should probably let you in on it. He said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said in response, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. What, what this means is that in a moment, in a flash, these people who had learned to coexist with broken walls and burnt gates, they were stirred up into action. God had awakened their hope. They're like, this could actually happen. Jerusalem doesn't have to be like that. Nehemiah has given us this plan. God has provided this can occur. And they were ready, so they strengthened themselves to work. But there was another group. When Nehemiah first arrived into town, two governing officials, one of them named Sanballat and one of them named Tobiah from the surrounding region, they heard that Nehemiah was there checking in on Jerusalem, and they were, it says in verse 10, greatly displeased that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And at the end of the chapter, they joined forces with a guy in the south named Geshem, so they've got Jerusalem surrounded. A coalition of forces that are all against this rebuilding project. But just as God was, I think, in the enthusiastic response of the Jewish people, I think God was also in the negative response of these enemies of Israel. These guys had said nothing for years, decades, about Israel's condition. They were happy about the broken walls and the burnt gates. But now that God's kids are acting like God's kids, the insults begin to fly. And Nehemiah is, is forceful in his response. He just tells them the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. What Nehemiah wanted everyone to know was that he was not leaning on the king's authority, but on the God of heaven's authority. Notice, he doesn't play the Artaxerxes card. Like, Artaxerxes said I could do this. No, he plays the God card. He says, the God of heaven sent me to do this, and you have nothing to do with it. This would set the tone for further confrontations with these same men. Now, it's really encouraging when people get their hopes all stirred up and they're excited about it. But it can be discouraging when someone hears a message like I've just delivered and says, man, I still don't think God's going to do it. I still am against that. I, I don't really think that that's possible. It can be discouraging, but the reality is sometimes those voices are from God as well. Those voices might come from the outside. They might come from inside the church, or they might even come from within our own hearts. But there will always be opposition to renewal. And Nehemiah gives us a template for how to respond to that opposition. Don't engage and just move on. 
God is with you. Just keep moving towards his plans for your life. I want to close by just saying this. On this side of the cross, you guys, we have the greatest reason to have a hope that is alive. We've got something better than Nehemiah. we got Jesus. From eternity past, the second person of the triune God was interceding for us, dreaming of the day that he would come and rescue us. From the very beginning, he was burdened for us and volunteered himself to rescue us. And with the commission of the Father and the resources of eternity, greater than any king on earth could offer, Jesus came to make the way for us to be renewed before God. And he's got plans and purposes for each one of our lives, ways to shape us and mold us into his image. And the question is, how will you respond? With hope or with hostility? And I pray that you would respond with hope.